podcast has bad words. <laughs> you, you ready to roll? All right, we, we can actually talk about this now, but when we're doing the live events, um, we will we'll say this episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody because <laughs> advertisements suck. But the whole audience will say it. It's That's a great. live event, so you'll have like 2,000 people saying, advertisements suck. Yeah. And um, it's at least making people question, like thinking about the three to 5,000 advertising messages that, that we see a day on average. And... Um, you know, again, I think some of them are worse than others, but that's why we're, you know, we're grateful that we have an audience that supports us, whether it's through buying our books or, or yeah. the folks who support us on Patreon. It allows us to sort of skip the advertisement thing because nothing drives me more crazy than when I'm I'm listening to a podcast. Like uh, one of my favorites is is something called the Culture Gab Fest. Oh, I'm obsessed with the Culture Gab yeah, Fest. So I was on it years ago. I love them so much. <laughs> okay, yeah, so Stephen Metcalf is one of my favorite people. Yeah, so Stephen and then uh, Dana. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll hear Dana like railing against corporations for 15 minutes, and then I shit you not that all of a sudden you say this episode is brought to you by Exxon. And I'm like, <laughs> Wait a minute, you just went. You had a 15 minute diatribe, and now literally you're talking about. Exxon Mobil. Yeah. Um, we love you, Dana. Yes. Yeah, absol- <laughs> absolutely. But but like I can only imagine yeah. the discontent yeah, that, yeah. that creates in her of heart. Course, right. Of course, yeah. and, and I'm not begrudging her for, you know, having to pay the bills, but when we talk about junk value, sometimes money becomes a a a junk value. Now that's not to say that we don't need money. We live in a world that is sort of you know, uh, what's uh, Chris Ryan, his new book that's coming out. Um, actually, by the time oh, this episode Civilized comes, to Death. Yeah. yeah, Civilized to Death. I love yeah. Chris as well. Yeah, yeah well, well, we're going to have him back on uh, to talk about that. He and Ryan are good friends. But he's good. He's basically talking, you know, we, we have civilized ourselves to death, right? And money is sort of a part of that. Well, the right? happiness research on money is it's important to stress this. So basically, people like Richard Layard, who's a professor in Britain, is, have shown this. So basically, up to a middle class income, um, ha- money significantly improves your happiness. So if you are poor, if you're significantly poorer than the people around you, you will feel terrible. I, I, but, I hey, let me can I, let me interrupt here because I, I know I've I've read this research and I think it's probably true, but I also think that it's not necessarily true. So financial insecurity. So there's a few things that we're saying about that. The um, j- just to say, I just finish that thing about Richard Lowe's thing because the second bit is uh, to me more important. Okay. Once you get to a middle class income, uh, relatively low, it's about. Thirty-five to forty thousand dollars, so relatively low by the standards of rich people, certainly. And mm-hmm. um, after that, more money does not make you happier. Right. Right. So actually, um, you, once you get to a middle-class income, uh, you've basically hit the 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 love of happiness that money can provide. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think what what, what causes the happiness is not unhappiness is not the money itself. Right. It's the it's the insecurity it's, of it, it's, yeah. It's it's the healthcare it provides. It's the roof exactly. over your head. It's the food on the table. It is it's the gas in your car. It's it, the it, lack it, of control over your own life. Yes, right. Yeah, and and the lack of control over your own future. And this is one of the causes of depression, anxiety. I write about in Lost Connections. That I think is most underrated. Um, a disconnection from a sense that you have a future that you understand is a massive driver of depression and anxiety. Mm. Uh, so we know that from a really interesting study I can tell you about if you want, but to me, the most important bit is the solution. So one of the most effective antidepressants we know about is something that was established by an experiment in Canada in the 1970s. Uh, the Canadian government chose a town at, seemingly genuinely at random in Canada. It's a place called Dauphin. It's about uh, four hours from Winnipeg, for people who know Manitoba. Um, yeah. And they said to a whole lot of people in this town, from now on, we're going to give you a guaranteed income, right? You don't have to do anything in return for it. 
and there's nothing you can do that means we'll take it away unless you go to prison, mm-hmm. right? We just, you're a citizen of our country. We want you to have a good life. It wasn't a huge amount of money. It was 12, 000, equivalent of 12,000 US dollars today, okay. right? So you're not going to be homeless if you've got $12,000, but you're not going to have a great life, right? right. Um, and this was then studied very carefully by a great um, person called Dr. Evelyn Forget to see the effects. Loads of interesting things happened, but the most important is there was a massive fall in mental health problems. Mm. Mental health problems that were so severe that people had to be shut away in mental hospitals, that fell by 9% in just three years, right? Mm. You won't find a drug that causes that level of fall in institutionalization, right? Um, so we know that giving people a baseline of financial security makes them feel better right that's again goes into the no shit sherlock category but you think about what's happened in this country right what you've had is a situation where you've had the collapse of the middle class and a massive transfer of wealth to the rich right right? to the point where now half of all americans through no fault of their own have less than 500 dollars in savings for if a crisis comes along Right. right so that makes a lot of people feel like shit and then in the middle of all that that long 30 year trend We've had also a massive rise of a story that says, if you feel like shit, it's because something went wrong in your brain. Mysteriously, it seems to be going wrong in everyone else's brains at the same time. And the only solution is for you to drug yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now you can see how, why those two stories occur at the same time. Who benefits from those stories? I'm not suggesting it's not conspiratorial or anything. It's just, you know, that's a, what we've done is we've depoliticized the pain Mm -hmm. caused by this extreme inequality. Mm -hmm. That's one of many factors. And again, universal basic income, one of the most effective antidepressants we know. But, but, but to get your head around that, I think you have to change how we think about what an antidepressant is. And there's one person, because I found this really challenging, right? I had 13 years where the only story I had about my pain was that there was something wrong in my head. And I remember one of the, and, and, and learning the evidence, actually there's much wider range of causes. Initially, I found very destabilizing and, and quite threatening. If you've got a story about your pain, even if that story isn't working very well for you, and it clearly wasn't for me, at least you feel like you know where you are, right? right? Um, in, a, in a weird way, and I know you talk about hope and despair in the book, but like it gives you a, almost a false sense of hope. Like there's there's a story, so... So I mean I'm thinking right now I uh, I just had an ultrasound recently because I've had a bunch of gut issues uh, I I too got E. coli poisoning except it's been with me for about a year at this point and I cannot oh, get Jesus. rid of it Yeah, um, I was in in Sao Paulo there were no advertisements but there was a lot of E. coli. It's um, <laughs> a good trade-off. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about you that. You can have less ads uh, and less E. coli, right? Yeah. There's not a uh, right, <laughs> interconnected relationship. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we were down there, and um, I, I got E. coli, whatever. Um, uh, we're, oh, the, the hope thing. So I went and got an ultrasound this past week just to make sure there was nothing more sinister going on, the uh, gallbladder cancer or, or something like that. Right. And I got the phone call. I was actually in our little storage closet over here when I got the phone call from mm. the doctor, and they're like, the, uh, it came back. Uh, there's no there's uh, there's it's negative yeah. which is positive um right. and, and like the sense of like relief that that washed over me but i also had to pause for a second and and express like gratitude i think that's one thing that we often we, we often forget to do because I, I was very quickly getting ready just to go about my day oh nope don't have cancer let's move on and to the next uh faux emergency right mm. and 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 but the story that i got there was there was there was some hope but the story i i had before that was like a lot of despair and that goes to i think one of the things that really helped to shift my perspective when i was in the midst of like being really thrown off by learning all these things and we're really trying to make sense of them 
I went to interview a, a great South African psychiatrist named Derek Summerfield, who told me this story that really changed how I thought and helped me to make sense a lot of a lot of the science I've been learning. So, Professor Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. He was studying mm. someone else, something else that was just, by coincidence, he was there. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs, so they were like, what are they? And he explained, and they said to him, oh, we don't need them, we've already got antidepressants. Hmm. And he was like, what do you mean? He thought they were gonna talk about some kind of herbal remedy, like, I don't know, St. John's Wort or something. Mm -hmm. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields, and one day he stood on a landmine left over from the US invasion of Southeast Asia, and he got his leg blown off. Mm. So they gave him an artificial leg, and they're good at that in Cambodia, because there's a lot of landmines, and after a while, he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently, it's super painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic to go back into the field where he got blown up. Mm. The guy started to cry all day. After a while, he refused to get out of bed. It was classic depression. Mm. The Cambodians said to Dr. Summerfield, well, this is when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. Mm. They realized that his pain made sense. It had causes in his life that were actually entirely understandable when you listen to the guy. And um, they figured, one of the doctors figured, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a couple of months, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. Hmm. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that sounds like a bad joke. I, I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively from this individual unscientific anecdote is what the leading medical body in the whole world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not in the main <clears throat> a machine with broken parts. Mm -hmm. You're a human being with unmet needs. Mm -hmm. And what you need is very practical help and support to get those needs met. We need to expand our idea of what an antidepressant is. For some people, it will include drugs, and that's important for some people. And it gave me relief for a short time. But precisely because this problem goes deeper than our biology, the solutions need to go much deeper too. And anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. A universal basic income is an antidepressant. That group that we were talking about where you got people to talk about their values, that was an antidepressant. I go through lots more different kinds of antidepressant mm. in the book. That we need to radically expand the menu of options, but to do that, we need to expand our understanding of what the problem is in the first place. In, yeah. in Chasing the Scream, you talk about Rat Park. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Because uh, uh, we do this little segment called More About Less where we read a little bit. I'm, I'll just read a, a paragraph about this and maybe we can expand on it. Uh, after learning all this, Bruce was beginning to develop, to develop a theory, one that radically contradicted our earlier understanding of addiction, but seemed to him the only way to explain this evidence. If your environment is like Rat Park, a safe, happy community with lots of healthy bonds and pleasurable things to do, you will not be especially vulnerable to addiction. If your environment is like the rat cages, however, mm -hmm. where you feel alone, powerless, and purposeless, you will be. Now, I mentioned earlier, Ryan and I are from Dayton, Ohio. Uh, overdose capital of America. I've and, been there. Yeah. Uh, okay, more, so, more heroin goes through Dayton, Ohio than any other city in the, in the U.S. And, and um, a lot of people we know have been have had overdoses, um, uh, and uh, including one person at this table. Uh, 
and, and so um, a lot of family members as well and, and uh, close friends of ours where it's either people losing their jobs, losing a sense of community. They, they lose a sense of meaning or, or belonging. And sometimes the, the, we derive, it's one of the things we were actually talking to, to Pete Buttigieg about was uh, when people give so much meaning to their vocation, but then they lose that vocation. You know, when the GM plant, for example, went out of business in Dayton, it wasn't just the, the 8,000 or 10,000 people at the GM plant that were affected. There were 200 other businesses that their only client was GM. And so there are all these other factories that all of a sudden overnight are shuttered. And the people who were going there every day, they lost the sense of, of, of meaning. And then you sort of correlate that, or you, you talk about uh, Rat Park sort of being the, the, uh, the correlative to that. Yeah, so um, one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to, and I didn't, I was too young to understand why then, but as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in, in my family. So it's why I spent a lot of time for, for my book, Chasing the Scream. I went over 30,000 miles trying to understand and I went to places that have adopted a whole range of responses to addiction and I learned a huge amount but one of the things that most that I found most transformative was the man you mentioned an absolutely wonderful human being I'm going to see him in a few days in Vancouver Bruce Alexander did this experiment so if you'd asked me at the start of my research eight years ago now what causes let's say heroin addiction I would have looked at you like you're an idiot and I would have said well the clues in the name heroin causes heroin addiction right we've been told this story for 100 years it's not totally untrue but it's a very small part of the picture so we think if we we're sitting here on a hollywood boulevard if we went out onto the street and we kidnapped the next 20 people to walk past this building and we like a villain in a saw movie we injected them all with heroin every day for a month at the end of that month they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason that they're um that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to have this desperate physical craving for, and that's what addiction is, right? Mm -hmm. The desperate physical craving for the chemical hook. That's why we call it being hooked, right? Right. Um, this theory, which is not totally false, I can explain, we know actually know how much of the story it explains, relatively small, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're mm -hmm. really simple experiments. Your listeners and viewers can try them at home if they're feeling a bit sadistic. You take a rat, <laughs> You put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water. The other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. Mm -hmm. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks, right? You might remember the famous advert in the 1980s from Partnership for Drug-Free America that showed this experiment. Mm. Um, so that that's our story, right? That's what we think addiction is. Uh. But in the 70s, Bruce was Professor Alexander was working in uh, the downtown east side of Vancouver, had a lot of addiction. And he was didn't think this quite matched with what he was seeing. And he went back and looked at these experiments and he said, well, hang on a minute. You put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats. Mm -hmm. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. They've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they've got loads of wheels, they've got loads of friends, can have loads of sex. Anything a rat can want in life, it's there in, in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the drugged water and the normal water, and of course they try both. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water very much. Mm. None of them use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they do not have the things that make life meaningful to no compulsive use and overdose when they do have the things that make life meaningful. And there's lots of human evidence for this I can talk about, but what this shows me, what shows us I think is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, important though that is for many people, 
the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. And um, to relate this to Dayton, um, where I spent a short amount of time or lots of other representatives of the opioid crisis, like Monadnock, I think we're telling a dangerously simplistic story about the opioid crisis. So the story we're telling, if think about Nancy Reagan's story about the so-called crack epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. Her story was a bunch of evil drug dealers came along. They sold this uniquely potent evil drug. It took over loads of people. And the solution is to crack down on the evil drug dealers and the people using, right? What we've got about the opioid crisis, what we've developed about the opioid crisis is a quite simplistic story that's parallel to that, which says... All that's happened here is these evil drug dealers, which in this case are the Sackler family, who are indeed the scum of the earth, have come along, they've given people these drugs, they've taken people over, and now we've got this crisis. Right. Now, it's important to explain, chemical hooks do play a real role in addiction. We can actually measure that. It's a very simple way of measuring it. Loads of your listeners will have taken part in it. Um, there's very strong agreement that the strongest chemical hook out there is nicotine, right? So mm. if you smoke cigarettes, like my, my mother smokes 70 cigarettes a day. There's an amazing photograph of me and my mother where she's um, six months old. She's breastfeeding me, smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach. <laughs> and when I, when I found this photograph wow. a few years ago, she said, you were a fucking difficult baby. I needed that cigarette. Oh, but, man. Um, <laughs> Just <laughs> while I smoke. Exactly. She's entirely oh, right. Wow. She's a very nice person. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the, so what my mother is physically craving when she's if she stops smoking, which she never does. On the rare occasions where she's on like a flight for more than two hours, uh, you know, what she's physically craving is nicotine, right? right. Mm -hmm. so, you, so this was the theory of smoking addiction. It's just a nicotine addiction, right? It's craving for the chemical hook. So in the late 1980s, nicotine patches are invented. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge wave of optimism because they're like, right, we can give smokers all of the chemical they're craving mm -hmm. and none of this filthy carcinogenic smoke people are going to stop smoking. Yeah. Nicotine in fact, patch. nicotine is, is a nootropic and it's not even that unhealthy for you. It's everything else that's in the cigarette mm -hmm. that, that is what, that's what's killing people. Exactly. And, and, and so when they were like, we can give you that uh -huh. and not this filthy tobacco and all of that, people are going to stop. What happened? The U.S. Surgeon General's report, did a, U.S. Surgeon General did a very detailed report. It found that highly motivated people given nicotine patches 17% of them can stop smoking. Now, it's important to say that's not nothing. That's right. a lot of people whose lives have been saved. Yeah. That's Give people the chemical hook, 17% of them can stop. But you'll notice that leaves 83% that has to be explained by something else, mm -hmm. right? So let's think about this in relation to the opioid crisis. Where is the opioid crisis happening? Places like Dayton, places like Monadnock, New Hampshire. Are those the places where people have the most access to prescription drugs? No. The faculty at Harvard... Everyone has insurance. They All of them can get prescription opioids tomorrow if they want to. Actually, it's quite hard. A lot of people don't have insurance in Dayton. It's harder to get them. The addiction is not happening where access to the drug was most easy. Mm -hmm. So where is the addiction happening? It's happening in the places that have been deprived of the things that make life meaningful through no fault of the people there. Professor Angus Dayton and Anne Case have done the most detailed studies of this. Uh, and they've they, they describe the opioid deaths as deaths of despair. It is not a coincidence that the places that have the highest opioid deaths have the highest non-opioid related suicides and the highest levels of antidepressant use, right? Mm. If you deprive people of the things that make life meaningful, look, if you want to understand why people are taking so many painkillers, you've got to understand why they're in such deep pain. Mm -hmm. And there are places that... And this is 
a problem that is entirely soluble and I have been to the places that solved it. Well, let's are, talk about Portugal and, and Switzerland in particular. Yeah. So Portugal in the, and I spent a lot of time in Portugal for my book about this, Chasing the Scream. Um, so in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world. Actually, it was worse than the current opioid crisis proportionate to the size of the country. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, mm. which is staggering, yeah. right? And they spent years trying the American way. They arrested more people, put more people on trial, sent more people to prison, shamed them, criminal records. The sort of traditional war on drugs. Exactly, exactly. Relatively recent tradition. It's only about 70 years old at that time. But yeah, um, actually been different response before. We can talk about it if you want. But the, um, And every year they did that, the problem got worse. And one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together. They're like, look, we can't go on like this with ever more people being addicted to heroin. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. So they decided to do something really radical, something nobody had done since the global drug war had begun 70 years before. They said, should we like ask some scientists what we should do? So they set up Imagine a panel. That. Insane. <laughs> so they set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an incredible man. I became friends with Dr. Huang Gulao. Um, and... And they said to this panel, it was entirely scientists, doctors, a couple of judges and social workers. Why would you talk to those people when we have perfectly good politicians? (laughs) (laughs) And police officers, right? (laughs) They said to this this panel, go away, look at all the evidence all over the world. Uh And we've agreed that when you come back, we'll do whatever you recommend. So all the political parties who were represented in parliament agreed to do that. Just took it out of politics. I don't think they thought they were going to recommend what they did. But to be fair to them, they all stuck by it. So panel goes away, looks at all the evidence, comes back and said, decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to meth, everything. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on screwing people's lives up, shaming them, imprisoning them, punishing them, and spend all that money instead on turning their lives around. And interestingly, it's very relevant to what you're saying in Dayton, it's not what we, most of what they did is not what we think of as drug treatment. So there was some residential rehab and psychological support, which has value. Single biggest thing they did was a big program of job and meaning creation for people. Mm. Um, Say you used to be a mechanic. They go to a garage and they say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. They set up a big program of very small business loans for people with addiction problems so they could set up businesses about things they cared about. Uh, The goal was to say to every person with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you. We value you. We're on your side. We want you back. And by the time I went to Portugal, it was 13 years since this experiment had begun. The results were in, according to the biggest scientific study published in the British Journal of Criminology. Um, Addiction was massively down. Uh, Injecting drug use was down by more than 50%. Overdose deaths were massively down. Um, uh, uh, HIV transmission was massively down. Mm. Street crime was massively down. One of the ways you know it works so well is that nobody in Portugal wants to go back, mm. right? Virtually nobody is a handful. No one represented in the parliament. Even the far right party doesn't want to go back. And I remember I went to interview a, a wonderful person named Huao Gulao, who was the top drug cop in Portugal at the time of the decriminalization. <clears throat> And he said what lots of people listening to this totally understandably will think, which is surely if we decriminalize all drugs, you'll have a massive explosion in drug use. You'll have kids using drugs. You'll have people using drugs on the street. It'll be a disaster. It reminds me, Ryan, you and I were talking about um, during the last election cycle, uh, Gary Johnson, the, the libertarian candidate, some like mother said, asked him basically like, hey, my son died of, of a heroin overdose. Yeah. How could you possibly advocate 
How can we, legalizing drugs, how would that have saved my son? And all, all I thought was, I wish Johan was here to, yeah, answer, this to answer that question instead of Gary Johnson. Because well, the truth is, yeah. is, like her son probably would not have passed away if, if they were legalized. Well, we, we know the exact figure for that, which I'll say in a second. But the, the Juan Gulao, sorry, Juan Figuera, the, the guy who led the opposition, said to me, this is 13 years on, everything I warned would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years fucking people's lives up when he could have been helping them turn their lives around. But entirely, this mother who challenged Gary Johnson, I mean, it's an error to ask Gary Johnson any question, but the, <laughs> but, uh, uh, which is a shame because there's a lot of important and valuable, liber- I'm not a libertarian, but there's lots of valuable libertarian True. insights. He's just not a good, not at all a good, uh, his, uh, that thing of him saying, what's Aleppo? Because yeah. he thought oh my God. the city in Syria I remember, was what, like- I remember I was like, I'm going to start getting interested. I'm going to start to get interested in this guy. And I went to watch like one of the live streams he did, had no sound whatsoever. For like 30 <laughs> minutes, he was like talking and talking and I'm like, this dude has no, and people are even typing it. There's no sound. And then he finally caught on. Anyway, long story. Short, it's a shame because yeah. I actually think he's quite a nice person, Gary yeah. Johnson, but yeah, it's right. not, a, not a good spokesman for any cause. But the, the um, so I understand because you've got to think about how this problem is framed. So this mother, right, and obviously I know lots of people and I've interviewed lots of people who've lost someone in the, lost someone to and we don't want to undermine like that loss man like it's very yeah it's it's the most precisely because it's the most dreadful thing that can happen yes yes we need to actually look at the real solutions right Mm -hmm. right and we and and there's overwhelming evidence about this so think about that mother she has been told the thing that killed your son was heroin Right. right so of course what she thinks when she hears the word legalization is oh so you're saying that the drug is good or acceptable um so you're going to be more of it. More people are going to die like my son. So I would tell her the story of what happened in Switzerland. I mean, I'm my dad's from Switzerland, so I'm a Swiss citizen as well as obviously, as you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey voice, British. Um, <laughs> the the so at the same time, Portugal has this crisis. Switzerland has a nightmare heroin problem in the year 2000. They pursued a slightly different route. Um, so people, some people might remember, like. Swiss people are, this is particularly a nightmare for Swiss people because they're obsessed with order, right? Like, that it's not a coincidence they invented clocks. Yeah. Uh, so they have chaotic street use in places like Zurich and, and, and Geneva and Bern. Um, so, you know, people like nightmares, people injecting in the neck in public parks, like horror show. Um, and again, they tried all sorts of things, punishment, shame, you know, um, and it went on and on. And it got worse and worse. And then Switzerland got its first female prime, uh, first female president. You guys might want to try that one day. Uh, and a completely incredible, uh, one of my, my candidate for president of the world, uh, I got to know Ruth Dreyfus, right? And Ruth Dreyfus explained to the Swiss people that she thought the solution was to legalize heroin. And which sounds bonkers, it sounds right? sounds crazy, yeah. yeah. And she said, when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is anarchy and chaos. Right. She explained, what we have now is anarchy and chaos. Right. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users, all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease, and chaos. Legalization, she said, is going to be the way we restore order to this anarchy. Mm. So it's very important to understand legalization means different things for different people. Yeah. So I don't know the rules here in LA, but I'm pretty sure you guys, if you wanted to, could own... A dog, a monkey, and a lion. 
but the rules are going to be different, right? A dog, we can just go into a store. A monkey, I think you might need a license. Mm. And a lion, I'm sure they come and like inspect your home and make sure you're not a mad person, right? right. So <laughs> all three of those things are legal, but they're legal in different ways. Right. She was not, no one has, to my knowledge, and maybe there's some very hardcore libertarian, but I've never met anyone in the drug reform world who wants to legalize heroin so that there's like a heroin aisle in CVS or something, right? That's not the plan, right? right? Yeah. So the way heroin legalization works in Switzerland, it was set up. Um, if you've got a heroin problem, you're assigned to a clinic. Ruth Dreyfus, the former president, lives directly opposite the clinic in Geneva. And it seems uh, like the, the clinic option is also a, a, a non-shaming option, whereas in our current culture, it's uh, it still seems like when we want drug treatment, it's somewhat shame-based. Huge amount. They tell you you've got to do a moral inventory of your flaws, right? Mm. Now, people with addiction problems have plenty of flaws because all humans have plenty <laughs> right. of flaws, right? And we can all do with a moral inventory. But the idea that addiction, you know, there's a lot of internalized stigma in a lot of the drug treatment world. In the Swiss model, so you're assigned to a clinic, you go to that clinic, you have to go at seven in the morning because Swiss people believe in doing things insanely early. This is a constant argument between me and my dad. Mm. Um, you, you turn up, you're given your heroin there, free. It's medically pure heroin, not the contaminated shit you'd buy on the street, not right. so far from the where fentanyl we are now. That's stronger than heroin. Exactly. Kills you. Yeah. you know, but there's never been any fentanyl. Switzerland, right? Mm. They. Uh, so you're you're given your heroin there. You use it there. You're watched by a nurse. You can't take it out with you, partly because they don't want you to resell it on the streets, but mainly because they want to make sure if anything goes wrong, they can look after you. Right. You use your heroin there, and then you leave to go to your job, because you're given a huge amount of support to get therapy housing and work, right? Which by the way is much cheaper than sending someone to prison. Um, and and um, the results are now in in Switzerland. They're very clear. Um, do you want to guess how many people have died of heroin overdoses on legal heroin in the last 15 years? Zero. Not a single person. Yeah. More people have died of, legal, of heroin overdoses in Los Angeles in the time you and I have been speaking <sighs> than have died in Switzerland in 15 years, right? Yeah. Now, it's important. And, and by the way, Swiss people are super conservative like my swiss relatives make trump look like aoc and yet swiss people had a referendum after this had been in place for two years swiss people had a referendum on whether to keep heroin legal they have referendums all the time in switzerland and they voted by a huge majority 70 percent of people voted to keep heroin legal not because they're so compassionate they're not it was just a massive fall in crime mm -hmm. right because like the associated chaos of think about where we are in LA. We're not so far away from these nightmare tent cities. Um, so it's important for people to understand these problems are soluble, but think about what they did in Switzerland because it is literally the opposite of what the United States is doing with the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. They did two things. One, we will give you the drug you are addicted to, mm -hmm. right? For as long as you know. And one of the things that's really striking to me in Switzerland is uh, really surprised me when I was at the, obviously I spent time at the clinic interviewing people is they will give you that heroin for as long as you want mm -hmm. right there's never any pressure to cut back and they will give you any dose you want apart from a fatal dose right yeah. um, and yet almost everyone on the program does cut back over time and stop and i remember saying to uh, dr rita mangi who is the chief is the chief psychiatrist at the clinic in geneva wait that doesn't seem right because surely if you gave people an infinite supply of the drug they'll just at maximum dose, they'll all just use it at the maximum dose forever. Right. And she looked at me like I was dumb and she said, well, we help them. And as their life gets better, they don't want to be anesthetized so much, mm. which mm. is such a kind of stupidly obvious insight. Now yeah. think about what we did. So Switzerland, two things, give them the drug they're addicted to, give them a massive amount of help to deal with the reason why they're addicted 
so that over time they won't want the drug. What are we doing? Exactly the opposite. Take away the drug. If your doctor finds out you're addicted, not because you've got to oxy, not because you've got back pain, but you know because you're because you're addicted. Uh, by law, that doctor has to cut you off. Mm. Otherwise, he can go to prison as a drug dealer, which is happening to doctors. Right. So we take away the drug, which means that people just go and buy street drugs instead because they're cheaper. Things like heroin, in most cases, not in every case. Uh, and secondly, far from giving you help, we give you a criminal record. Mm. We shame you, punish you. Instead of giving you a trampoline to help you back to connection, we, you know, we ground you. We, we rub your face in the dirt. We mm -hmm. put barriers between you and reconnection. So we need to start, we need to get away from the simplistic stories and we need to imitate the places that have succeeded. At the moment, what the US is doing is copying the places that have disastrously failed. Mm -hmm. And if we carry on copying the places that have disastrously failed, where I've also been like Vietnam, we'll keep getting disastrous results, right? Yeah. And these deaths, you know, more people have died in the opioid crisis than in all the wars since Second World War. Mm. All the soldiers, who've, American soldiers who've died in those wars, right? The, the, the figures are just staggering. Um, these are overwhelmingly preventable deaths, right? Switzerland has brought its deaths down to zero on legal heroin and massively low on illegal heroin because who wants to buy shitty contaminated street heroin when you would no help when you can go and get free, much better legal heroin right. with help, and right? You're not, and you're not worried about the, the contamination or, or, or anything else. You know, Strangely, this is a very sort of libertarian or what I would call libertarian approach what portugal and, and switzerland have done because there is government intervention there still so it's not like you know it's not anarcho capitalist sort of thing but there is a there's a, a government involvement but it's government support as opposed to government uh, uh punitive sort of punishment exactly and i think you know Rand paul was very nice about my book and uh chasing the scream um and yeah i mean even if all we did was stop punishing people without the help, that would be an improvement, right? Because what we're doing now is not just, sometimes people say, oh, the war on drugs isn't solving the problem of addiction. The answer is much worse. The war on drugs is making the addiction crisis radically worse, right? right? It's not the only contributor to be sure. There's all the deep underlying causes that we're talking about. Sure. But it makes it, I mean, I remember in Arizona, I, I, I went out on a chain gang with women who were made to go out, uh, this is by that psychopath, jo Sheriff Joe Arpaio, mm -hmm. um, wearing t-shirts saying I was a drug addict and they were made to dig graves and things while members <laughs> of the public mock them and jeer at them. Wow. Now it's not true to say that doesn't work. What will happen to those women? They will be much more traumatized and much more destroyed and more addicted when they leave that prison, right? Yeah. So it's, it, it, it's kind of grossly underestimating the harm to say it doesn't work, right? Mm. Giving them sugar pills wouldn't work, right? right. Mm. This is actively harming them and making their addictions worse. Right. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. We've got a few questions here from, from our audience. I know you got to get out of here in about six minutes, but uh, Madison's asking, how does our obsession with material possessions make us more anxious, depressed, and lonely? And what's the solution? So I think we, we touched on this a, a little bit, but um, these are these are the junk values that, that you talk about. And Ryan and I often talk about the, the material possessions are a physical manifestation of really what's going on inside us. We, we have these sort of, we have this internal clutter, mental clutter, psychological clutter, spiritual clutter, whatever you want to call it. And it manifests outwardly. You know, the average American household has 300,000 items in it. And uh, 
It'd be fine if all these things were making us happier, but they seem to be doing the opposite. Be fine if they were all books, uh, but they're not. Uh, exactly. yeah. But the um, yeah, and I thought about them. <laughs> you have to read them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I I, I of yesterday. I went into you know the last bookstore, that gorgeous bookstore. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Quite a few tour stops there. I love that place. Yeah, and, and it's one of our favorites. One of the things that really enrages me, and I nearly snapped at these people, and I thought this is a sign that I'm just tired because I've been traveling so much, is people who go into that store to take photographs of themselves in front of the books oh, rather yeah. than fucking buying a book. Yeah. And I want to just go, yeah, the, the knowledge doesn't fucking transmit into your brain through the Instagram picture <laughs> yeah. you're taking, right? But that right? second floor is art though, man. Like, it is, it is amazing. unbelievable. But, but you should it, still yeah. be criminalized. For having, we should legalize <laughs> drugs and criminalize people taking photographs <laughs> in the last bookstore. But related to what she, to what your, uh, is her name Tabitha? No. Madison. Madison, that's oh, Tabitha was person name. Yeah. Um, well, it makes me think about the, what we were talking about before, the tech things. So I went to the first ever uh, internet rehab center in the world. It's outside Spokane in Washington. Mm. And, um, you know, they get loads of different people there, but they disproportionately get young men who become obsessed with multiplayer role-play games like uh, world, world of Warcraft or it, it didn't exist then, but now I'm sure it's now Fortnite. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I remember having a really fascinating conversation with the woman who you should totally ask on your show who runs it, Dr. Hillary Cash. And her saying to me, I'm paraphrasing, but you've got to ask yourself, what are these young men getting out of these games? Because they're getting something, right? Right. And she said to me something like, they're getting the things they used to get from the culture, mm -hmm. but they no longer get. Yeah. They're getting a sense they're part of a tribe. Yep. They're getting a sense that they're physically roaming around because they never fucking leave their houses because yeah. they're like prisoners. They're raised like prisoners. They're, um, they're getting a sense they're good at something, yeah, which the school system... Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Are getting a sense that other people see them because you're playing with other people, which you don't get in this culture. Think about Tabitha and her question. Um, but what they're getting is like a parody of, I'm not against video games, obviously, but what they're getting is like a, if it's this obsession, it's like a parody of those things. I started to think- Social media is similar in, in that respect. Yeah. Totally. I started to think the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? I'm not opposed to porn, but- if your entire sex life consisted of wanking over porn, you're going to be going around pissed off and irritated all the time because right. we didn't evolve to masturbate over screens. We evolved to have sex, yeah, right. right? It doesn't it's mean- junk connection. Exactly. That, that's a really, oh, I might use that phrase. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> that's a good phrase. It's exactly, it's that, it's it's a thin parody of connection, right? Yeah. Um, at, but you can see, again, it's a symptom. And just like the chemical hooks are real and do play some role, there's a real debate about the devices and the ways they're programmed and lots of people are doing great work like that. People like Tristan Harris at the mm -hmm. Center for Humane Technology. So there's a degree to which there's something going on with the device, but it's also, that's a that that's like the, the symptom on top of this well of disconnection and despair. And you think about when the internet arrived. The internet arrived for most of us in the early 2000s. Right. A lot of the things that we're talking about were already supercharged by then loneliness, junk values, financial insecurity, many of the other causes of depression that I write about in Lost Connections. Um, and what happens is the internet arrives and it looks a lot like the things we've lost. You've lost friends, here's some Facebook friends. You've lost status in the economy, here are status updates. But it's not the thing we've lost. And you know that line that people always say in AA, uh, you, can you, you can never have enough of something that's not quite enough. Mm. That's that's what's going on with this social media. Not to say social media doesn't have a role to play, of course it does. Yeah. But it, 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 Professor John Cassiopo, who was one of the leading experts in the world on loneliness, who sadly died recently, gave me a good little rule of thumb for this. He said, if social media is a way station to connecting with people offline, it's a good thing. If it's the last stop on the line, something 
most of the time something's gone wrong. Yeah, we're, we're here because we connected on Twitter first. I've met a lot of my closest friends on Twitter, but if it, if it is that last stop, then it's not a, a meaningful connection. Yeah, but your Twitter followers will not come to your funeral. No. Right. Oh, yeah. what a great! That's, that's pithy. You yeah. can wherever podcast Sean is right now. Um, uh, Johan, I want to say thank you. I know, I know, you got to get oh. out of here. Um, I want to acknowledge you for creating something meaningful, for writing something meaningful. Oh. We really appreciate you. You're welcome back You're awesome, anytime. Oh, well, thank you for your work, which is so important. I feel. Oh. You know, we're we're coming at things from the same angle, and I think what you're doing. And lots of people talk to me about your podcast. And I think what you're what you're doing is really important. And these are exactly the conversations we have to have. Mm. And if we, you know, and one of the strange things is, and I think you guys know this better than me, people are so hungry for these conversations, right? Yeah. This is not like explaining quantum physics or Noam Chomsky's linguistics or something. At some level, people know this already. They're desperate for someone to talk about it. They're desperate to activate. I feel like what what, what I do and what you do is give people permission to trust the things they already know yeah. at their di- in their deepest selves. Amen. You know? I love that. Yeah. Hooray. And I should just say, because my publisher's always... Uh, cattle problem me if I don't say this I meant to say um, they gave me this thing to read which I can't read out because it just makes me sound like a mad person but the um, you can have you said all that about social media if you want to be updated on this stuff you can follow me on various things and um, if you go to www.johannharri.com you can see where you can get the book or audio book of both my books you can see where you can follow me but I was asked in an interview recently and they did at the end they were like so what's your Twitter what's your Facebook whatever and then they said what's your Snapchat and I was like I am a 40 year old man right? <laughs> the, the only 40 year old men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles who should be arrested right I was like and that should be the new episode of To Catch a Predator it should be just going up to men in the street and going are you on Snapchat right. if they say yes Come with immediately me. arrest them right? so it's like Chris Hansen comes out exactly that's it Feel free to take oh, that concept yeah. for a TV show. Whatever you want with will, it. We'll put links to all that in the show notes. Amazing. Thanks so much for being Thank here. Thank you man. both. Hooray. Let's grab some hugs and you're yeah. welcome back anytime, brother. Hooray. We Thank love you, you, patrons. Thanks so much for joining us. You guys are awesome. All right, and we're back. Johan had to leave, but we are still here, Ryan. Mm-hmm. We're just Ryan's just into eating the into the microphone. That's right. People love <laughs> listening to that. <laughs> Uh, let's see. We got some more questions here. Uh, he had to take off, but um, I wanted to get to some of these. Jeff said that uh, Kierkegaard explains anxiety as dizzy as the dizzying effect of freedom, of paralyzing possibility, of the boundlessness of one's own existence, a kind of existential paradox of choice. Do you agree? Um, well, anxiety as the dizzying effect of freedom. Yeah, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think you can be unfree and still experience anxiety. You can be in prison, and and I I don't know about you, Ryan, but being in prison would make me pretty anxious. Sure. Um, I feel anxiety all the time, man, for no reason. I mean, well, well, yeah, but he's saying it's the it's the effect of uh, the the side effect of of freedom. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard for me to disagree with, with Soren Kierkegaard well, I think about that, anything. I think to put any one reason to say why anxiety is caused is foolish. Well, I don't think that's what, what's going on here, though. He's saying... So, so, one of the, so just to reframe this, one of the causes of anxiety is freedom. That, that's how... I, and I would agree with that. One of sure. The, yeah, where... Yeah, maybe we just take aside... T- take away the word freedom for a moment and say the paradox of choice. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the paradox of choice, um, I, mean, I think I think of Walmart. Yeah, I walk into Walmart. And oh, like you ever been through a freaking 
a book of like carpet samples or like floor oh, samples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's <clears throat> it's the reason like when when you and I were in the corporate world, you you have a, a sort of sales sheet. There's plenty of plans to choose from. Uh, but it's good, better, best. You want to give people three options because people want the, the freedom of choice. But if you have 3,000 options, then you just throw your hands up and say, well, I don't know. I'll go with whatever I'm used to, even if it's not sure. the best option. It's certainly uh, one cause of anxiety. Totally agree. Yeah, the boundlessness of one's own existence. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are so many things we can do with our time right now, and mm -hmm. that can be overwhelming. And when you're overwhelmed, you tend to feel anxiety, Especially right? if you focus on all the things that you're not doing. I mean, right now we're doing a podcast. I could be writing right now. I could be practicing for the documentary that's coming up. I could be uh, out volunteering my time at the food kitchen. Mm -hmm. And if I focus on all those things, like, yeah, that would also be anxiety inducing because we do have, you know, pretty much endless possibilities that we can do with our time. And that's why doing something li like this podcast actually staves off the anxiety because you've made the choice. Yeah. A and uh, later you'll have to make some other choice about what else to do because we can't podcast for 24 hours a day. Although I'm sure someone has done that as some sort of experiment. So, uh, so I don't know. Do we agree with Kierkegaard? Uh, <laughs> yes. I, think, I mean, I think, yeah, that's, I think he points out one reason why people can be anxious. And, and, and I certainly do see what he's saying. Is this the, the, you know, the ultimate cause of anxiety is the dizzying effect of freedom and the paralyzing, uh, you know, d different choices we face. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's one. Those could be some reasons why. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. Laura says, "I've noticed everyone seems to be either anxious or depressed, mm. and I attribute this to information overload from social media." So we talked about that a little bit already with uh, with Johan here. Yeah. Social media is sort of being the the junk connection, right? But what she's asking here is, how do we slow down in such an exponentially fast-paced reality? How do we find contentment in the present and stop living in the future or living for Instagram? Well, there's a bunch Delete of questions it. there. Yeah. So that means I mean, it's it's easier said than done to be like, well, stop taking in social media, but do a little bit of a social media fast. I mean, if you feel like. You know, you're you're over. I, that's why I got off of Facebook. Mm -hmm. Is it was it was anxiety inducing. On on its best day, it pacified me. On its worst day, it ruined my whole day. Yeah, and isn't that fascinating, Ryan? How like you can be having a perfectly fine day, good or great. Mm -hmm. and you're walking down the street, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you're like, oh, I got a moment. I'll check this thing, and it's like, oh, some asshole on Twitter has just ruined this minute hour whatever has ruined the moment for me for sure right and and you're right it, it is easier said than done but if you don't have access to it right there on your phone then all of a sudden you, you don't have the that person doesn't have the capacity to ruin your day yeah. Yeah. david foster wallace here's our dfw segment for the podcast he he talked about um the reason he didn't have a, a modem at home so this was in 1996 like he didn't have an internet <laughs> modem ryan because uh he said if i can get out they can get in mm. now he didn't mean literally like someone's although yeah people can now they, they can look at your phone uh yeah there are certain you know what was the face app thing i'm sure they have all of our photos now for any of us who downloaded that app um but uh, that's not what he meant. He didn't mean they can actually get in and spy on me. He meant they can get in here, in my brain. Yeah. And that is one of your most precious resources. You're giving people access to your attention. Mm. And if you want to reclaim 
your attention, well, the first way to do it is to to cut off other people's access to your attention as much as possible. Yeah. doesn't mean you have to completely remove yourself from social media. It means being more deliberate with it. Last thing I'll say about that is uh, check out Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism. You can check out the episode we did with him as well, as well as the... Um, maximal episode we did with him but Mm -hmm. um his book he doesn't just talk about doing a fast or a a detox from social media what does he call it he calls it a a social media or digital declutter yeah and a 30-day digital declutter and he has a whole experiment he had 1600 people do that digital declutter experiment and he learned a lot and he wrote about it in digital minimalism yeah and and laura brings up the fast-paced reality i mean we get to choose the pace that we live our lives Hmm. And if we take all the options that the world offers us to make our lives as fast paced as possible, then that's, yeah, that's certainly going to cause some, some uh, anxiety and that's going to cause some depression. Yeah. It's kind of like a treadmill, right? Like yeah. how do I keep up with this fast paced treadmill? Well, you just, you, you slow it down. Right. And, but it can go up to 10. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it, that's the thing. Someone else, uh, other people are actually coming along. Each person is coming along. It's like you're in a gym and you're on a treadmill and it's at like what the four miles an hour, whatever it is. It's the fast, a brisk walk. But then each person walks by, they just hit the button once. Right. But that's what's happened to us with, with the digital world and with, with the fast the fast paced world around us, it's like everyone around us, they're not adding that much on. They just hit the button once. Now it's at four point one and then you come by and hit it's four point two and next person four point three and before you know it, you're at a fast paced run and you can't keep up with it and you're exhausted because everyone else you've let everyone else in to hit that button to increase the uh, the the speed of your world and now it's up to you to hit that button and slow down or maybe it makes me oh good temporarily jump off the treadmill yeah just for a moment that's that that digital declutter and then you can get back on at the appropriate pace the button makes me think of the like button and i know that has really nothing to do with what you're saying but Never, I mean, I can remember posts that I've shared and like, oh yeah, I got a lot of likes or, you know, an Instagram post. Oh yeah, they got a lot of likes, mm-hmm. but, but I cannot recall like the most meaningful moments in my life has nothing to do with any of those posts, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm really getting at. So you're, you're absolutely right. So if I, can you think back to like the most, what, what is the most meaningful social media <laughs> post I've ever, like even asking the question you. like that out loud yeah. illustrates the absurdity of, of the question itself. All right, uh, another question here from Andrew. How does food contribute to depression? Dude, did you read about the kid who died recently? No. He it, In the UK, he lived off of... Let's see, I'm going to try to use uh, British terms here. Crisps <sighs> and chips and white bread. What are What's there between crisps and chips? Crisps are potato chips, American. Uh, and chips are french fries? That is correct. Okay. Freedom fries. Yeah. You're so anti-American. and then white bread is white bread (laughs) but literally like that's what is what's that yeah so he went oh that's what it was he went blind yeah he didn't die he went blind jordan no more is here recording this by the way if the audio sounds great let us know in the comments because podcast sean is not here today if it sounds great we'll just fire sean (laughs) no Uh, he still has to like produce the everything else here's the thing though jordan i don't know if you all know this about jordan but he's deaf and well, he's half deaf, mm. right? And I don't mean deaf like in the hip hop. Oh, that's deaf from like the nineties. Um, I I mean he one of his ears doesn't work. So the sound quality is going to be awesome or horrible. You let us know. But anyway, this kid. By the way, if this comes through in only one ear, if you're listening to this and you can hear it only in one ear, then Jordan. Uh, well, 
I guess you're you're trying to impose your experience on the rest of the world. So yes, Jordan is correct. This Narcissist. Kid, this kid was eating so poorly he went blind. So uh, I'm assuming he would he if he continued down this route he would die. But like this kind of sounds like our diet. Literally, though, when we literally were in he was high. like yeah, literally he was living off of yeah. So French fries, potato chips, white <laughs> bread, and he'd have a piece of like a piece of ham every once in a while, or like you know like very little protein. Uh huh. So how does you know food relate to our overall feeling of anxiety and depression? I mean it's it's a huge factor. If we eat like shit, we're gonna feel like shit. I mean right. that's 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 pretty pretty obvious but you know i guess the obvious things are we don't act on the most obvious things sometimes well let's talk about why too and I, you know i've learned a lot about this over the the course of the last years ever since my my e coli poisoning and understanding macronutrients and, and micronutrients and also inflammation there is a a theory that is gaining a lot of traction in the medical community um and i talked to dr paul saladino about this a little bit and also dr tommy wood uh, Tommy might be the smartest person I've ever met, um, besides you, Ryan. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say besides yourself. <laughs> uh, no, I he uh, th there there is a theory now that inflammation might be the cause. Now, uh, 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 let's not say the other cause. It might be the main contributor. And this, by the way, this is not some. This is so cutting edge. It's not even in Lost Connection. Which, by the way, he does a great job of outlining let me let me just pull this up real quick because we're talking about depression here um uh, part two of lost connections he talks about the nine causes of depression and anxiety number one is disconnection from meaningful work number two is disconnection from other people number three is disconnection from meaningful values we talked about that versus junk values number four is childhood trauma uh, number five is status and respect number six is disconnection from the natural world number seven is disconnection from a hopeful or secure future and number eight and nine the real role of genes and brain changes now within the brain changes part um the uh, depression as we know it chemical depression may be driven at this point we don't know for sure but there's a, a, a a good theory that it is driven primarily from inflammation. So you're saying there's a tenth reason that is possibly out there. Well, right I'm now. saying it's part of that ninth reason. It, mm. it could be the the main contributing factor of that ninth reason. It could be that's uh, what creates the chemical imbalance, right? It, it, exactly. It, it may not even be. It may not be a chemical imbalance. It may be that it is uh, neuroinflammation. Uh, neural mm. inflammation. So. Um, but that the main contributing factor to that is what it's our diet. We have an inflammatory diet. The Western mm -hmm. diet, the standard American diet, is inflammatory, and um, it, especially the, the what you were just talking about. I mean, everything that you just named there—the the potato chips and the French fries and the white bread—those are all inflammatory foods. Uh, it's the social media of food. Uh, yes, and um, <laughs> and they actually provide. The macro one macronutrient. So there are three different macronutrients, right? You have you have carbohydrates, you have protein, you have fat, mm -hmm. right? Well, those are almost exclusively carbohydrates. Yeah. Now the the if they're deep fried in something, they have some fat, but they actually have bad fats. They have trans fats. They right. don't have the good fats in them. So you're not actually getting the good good fats. The you're not getting the macronutrients you need. By the way, you can live without carbohydrates. You can't live without protein, and you can't live without fat. 
you will die. And so the reason that he went blind or whatever likely has to do with because he he malnourished. He was malnourished, right? And we think of malnourished as like starvation, but malnourished mm-hmm. just means bad nourishment. Right. And so being malnourished means you're not getting a- adequate nutrients. Now he wasn't getting adequate adequate macronutrients, which is generally not a problem for any of us because mm-hmm. you have access to protein. It might be junk protein. You have access to fat. It might be junk fat, but you, you need these, these nutrients in there. Um, but he, he, we're talking about toxins. I mean, what everything that he is was eating had anti-nutrients, phytonutrients, phytoestrogens, all of these these inflammatory foods. Of course, you're going to feel anxiety and depression if you're experiencing inflammation. Mm. Uh, I would encourage folks to check out uh, Dr. Paul Saladino and, and his work. And uh, he has a really good podcast, too, called, uh, I think it's called Fundamental Health. Yeah, Fundamental Health Podcast. What kind of sucks about that crappy diet, too, man, is it is like a, it's this cycle you get caught in because you eat the french fries, you eat the white bread, you eat the potato chips, and you get this bit of a dopamine rush, and your body's like, oh, thank you for giving me this very, very easy carbohydrates to break down. So we, we go for this temporary relief but we're experiencing this long-term discomfort. Mm -hmm. And it's like anything else, you know, that we talk about, we always talk about, you know, looking more long-term, thinking about our values. And and, and the same thing goes with diet. I mean, you can think about what a good diet is. If you want long-term relief, like you've got to make good decisions with your diet. Those short-term decisions, you've got to make good ones to, uh, yeah, to to, to not go blind. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny. Like man cannot live off of bread alone. We, we've, I mean, that's that saying's been around for thousands of years, right? But we still just want to try it out for ourselves, just to see if it works. <laughs> Let's see here. Ark says, "Can you talk about Anthony Bourdain? How could a person who mm. seemingly had it all kill himself? Uh, because he didn't have it all. He had the he had it all with respect to what." what we think of in the Western world as having it all. He had all of the junk values fulfilled, right? right. He had money. He, uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, you saw his new new special. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, but I don't want to make fun of it. And I, I mean, I guess some of the, you know, some of the most difficult things can only be expressed through jokes. Yeah, and, and I think it, that's important. And that's why I think Dave Chappelle's new special, which, by the way, there's this huge... We, we can talk about this. We, we're fel- Dave's a fellow Daytonian. Yes. Um, but... Um, it's weird. I, there, I saw this gigantic when the special came out on August twenty sixth, and his trailer looked suspiciously like our first documentary. Um, he uh, uh, he talked about a lot of things that are very difficult for us to otherwise talk about yeah. that we can't talk about without sure. jokes. And he touched on. I mean, the thing is, he sort of. He, he reminds me of Andrew Schultz in, in a way where the only the only thing that's fair is if it's only fair if you make fun of everyone, including yourself. Sure. And that that's sort of what, what he does. Now, does he cross a line? Yes, but that's sort of the point. He crosses every line toward every sort of demographic. But I noticed this weird disparity where people, like real people like you and me, non-members of the media, I mean, mm-hmm. we're members of the social media, maybe, but like we're not you know, journalists or anything like that. Um, and So regular people from Dayton, Ohio, or from Winnipeg, or from wherever, they, they really enjoyed the special because he talked about some things that are difficult for us to talk about. Mm-hmm. And Anthony Bourdain was one of those. But then I saw the media reaction. Do you know that special as of this recording right now? Mm-hmm. 
if you look at Dave Chappelle's special, Sticks and Stones, mm-hmm. it has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's the critic score. Zero per- really? Have you ever seen anything with 0%? No. I've never, ever, ever seen anything with 0%. I don't really pay attention to critics, though, either. Right, and, and that, that's my point, is what a strange dichotomy where it is, it is praised by everyone in virtually every community, black, white, rich, poor, whatever, conservative, liberal, um, in terms of people, but then the media has a different sort of agenda here. And what it tells me is like, yeah, there are some things that are so difficult for us to talk about that we need people like Dave in order to talk about them because even you and I, we're on Patreon, so we can talk about these things. You know, the the, the patrons allow us to be wrong out loud, thankfully. Right. But there are things that we couldn't, you, we wouldn't, not that we couldn't, but we wouldn't talk about on, say, Netflix. Sure. Um, be, because it would get in the way of, a, of, a, of our message, which is about living a meaningful life with less stuff. Right. And, and so when I think about Dave talking about Anthony Bourdain, and then he talks about, I won't ruin his joke, but he talks about a friend who um, had went through much worse circumstances than Anthony Bourdain, but never, ever thought about killing himself. Right. And, and uh, suicide for many people is uh, unfortunately the only, the only way out. They see it as, as a way of stopping the pain. And, and I talked about this on our um, the Power of Thoughts episode on on Patreon with TK Coleman and uh, opened up about, you know, over the last year I've had quite a few suicidal thoughts and it has to do with the the chemical imbalance that I have mm-hmm. and the inflammation that I've had. Yeah, the pain. Yeah. The, the physical pain. Uh, the physical pain for sure. And, and hey, this is a, jumping out the window is literally a way to, to st- stop yeah. this, this, because I have a, I have a constant twenty four hour a day pain. It wakes me up in the morning. Woke me up at three a.m. this morning. Stomach pain. I I couldn't get back to sleep, and and I'm in a lot of pain from this this dysbiosis that's going on in my gut, and and so I've I've for the first time in my life ever thought about that. But what Anthony Bourdain was going through was not physical pain. It was a psychological pain, mm-hmm. which can start to manifest with physical symptoms for sure, but. He was experiencing a, a, a psychological pain. And for some people, if they don't see a way out, if they experience despair, which is one of the, the causes that we talked about here, a lack of hope, which is despair, it means I don't think my future is going to get any better. And if we feel like our future isn't going to get any better, then sometimes we turn to vices or if those vices stop working, which I know uh, Anthony Bourdain at some point had a uh, addiction to heroin as well mm. so if that vi- vice stops working then we might turn to something else more drastic and that could be suicide even let's see john has a, a question about how would johan johan uh, respond to <laughs> it's funny i messed up his name i had it perfect until he came in and told me how to pronounce it how not to pronounce his name mm. uh what did he say uh he was in a uh uh, he did an interview and, and someone called him uh, Joanne. Jo- Joanne Harry. <laughs> All right. So how does Joanne Harry respond to those saying he is wrong and his strong cr- criticism of the use of antidepressants? I think he already responded to that. He's saying yeah. they work uh, in some cases, but th- that's a minority of the cases. And that's what the evidence shows. It's right. a minority of the cases. And by the way, they're, they're a band. They work the same way bandages work. They might help you get through a period, but they are not 
the full spectrum of solutions. Right. Depression and anxiety both are symptoms of something that's going on. And sometimes that symptom is a chemical imbalance. But that's just one of the nine or ten symptoms that we talked about during this this uh, maximal episode that we've got to look at. So can antidepressants be a cure for some people? Sure. But like it is not the answer for all. I mean, even uh, Joanne Harry talked about how you you know he got he did get some relief. Re- right. He got you, he got a little relief. bit of relief. But it's not it it, it is not the cure i don't it doesn't sound like it's ever the cure it it sounds like it can provide relief it's 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 never the full cure the full cure is always uh going to be broader than that it's just like it's not like go gardening that's not the cure either but it can be part of the overall solution right i mean looking at why we experience why we are experiencing anxiety or depression and like and then and then you know building a solution based off of that why like that's what's going to help us get through it right and, and and understanding the why and the why is 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 never uh as easy as well you have a prozac deficiency mm-hmm. and, and so uh, we're going to give you pro because guess what no one has no one is born with a prozac deficiency right um but it can provide some temporary relief and and i, I think the Johan certainly expressed that when, when he was talking. Last question here from AJ. How can I help my adult son who struggles with depression, loneliness, addiction, connection, belonging, and meaning? Mm. He's in his second year of university, and he had a miserable first year academically and socially due to what I think is a gaming addiction. Uh, I wish I could inspire him to lead his best life in real life, leading by example, hasn't helped uh leading by example may have it might have helped more than you think it has not been the only solution uh i am not qualified to to talk about this aj uh, and so i i'm going to tell you i don't know personally i have not gone through this but read lost connections please because there he spends time with the people in this uh, this gaming addiction clinic in Spokane or right outside Spokane. And maybe we can get that gal who runs the place on the podcast to be talk great. more about it. He gave this. us like three or four podcast guest ideas. Yeah. Yeah, Johan. Yeah, yeah that was <clears throat> that's awesome. No, there's a I, I think it would be great to have her on. Uh AJ, you know, your son has to want to change. Like first and foremost, like I mean I deal with um I've dealt with addiction personally. Uh, I've gone through my own road of addiction. Um I have family members who are on that road right now. And if your son doesn't want to change, like, yeah, your son might want to feel different, but if he doesn't want to take the action to change, that's a better way of saying it. If he doesn't want to take the action to change, there's nothing you can do, AJ, to make him take the action. Like, he he has to want to do something different with his life. And it sounds like he's stuck in this rut right now. He's playing video games. Uh, whatever addiction, whatever whatever other addictions he is facing, um, he is he, he is caught in this vicious circle, and yeah, he's in a rut. And if he holds his hand out and he asks you for your help, then you can try some different things. I mean, uh, Johan gives a lot of different examples in this book of what people can do to kind of change their their uh, habits and how they can kind of get out of this rut. But ultimately, you're not going to be able to offer him any solutions, AJ until he asks for help or until he wants help. And understanding that 
as we talked about the the heroin addiction isn't heroin isn't necessarily the problem the right. gaming is also not necessarily the problem either uh, this is the excerpt i started reading earlier let me finish this this is from page 88 of lost connections I thought a lot about this, about how the depression or anxiety preceded the compulsive internet use for everyone here. This is at this uh, internet uh, addiction clinic. The compulsive internet use, she was saying, was a dysfunctional attempt to try to solve the pain they were already in. So think about that, AJ. The gaming might be, probably is the dysfunctional attempt to try to solve the pain your son is already in caused in part by feeling alone in the world what if that applies not only to the people here i wondered but to many more of us the internet was born into a world where many people had already lost their sense of connection to each other the collapse had already been taking place for decades by then the web arrived offering them a kind of parody of what they were losing Facebook friends in places of in place of neighborhoods, video games in place of meaningful work. So maybe there's a an answer for you as well, AJ. Um, can he find some meaningful work? And by the way, meaningful work doesn't mean um, you don't have to be Batman to have meaningful work, no. right? I I, th I think about the most some of the most meaningful jobs I ever had. I was a, a dishwasher at Bill Knapp's. Rest in peace, Bill Knapp's. Uh, restaurant in the Midwest uh, started in Battle Creek, Michigan, and they, uh, uh, my brother and I, both worked there, and and it was one of the most meaningful experiences I had because we were, were feeding people, but there was a sense of of community amongst the the people who worked there, mm -hmm. and I met some of my closest friends. In fact, our friend Adam, uh, Pastor Adam. I we went to the same high school. We never hung out though at the high school. We didn't start. We didn't become friends until he became a waiter at Bill Knapp's. Mm. And and we've been friends for, what, 25 years now, quarter century since then. And so uh, I find one of the most meaningful jobs I ever had was washing dishes yeah. at a now defunct restaurant near Kings Island in Kings Mills, Ohio. And that can be meaningful work as well. So check out Lost Connections, AJ. I think you'll find some value in it. And for everyone else listening to this, thank you so much. Thank you for being a Patreon supporter. We yes. are really grateful. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much, y'all. See ya. The Minimalists. <laughs>